0: Today, we meet to begin consideration of articles of impeachment against President Donald J. Trump.
1: Late Wednesday night, Democrats and Republicans on the House Judiciary Committee began an intense debate over two articles of impeachment against the President of the United States, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. The committee broke overnight, and the debate, called a markup, resumed Thursday morning as the committee headed toward a vote, on the final articles of impeachment. And late Thursday, after hours—and hours—and hours—of rancorous debate that were expected to end in a vote that night, Chairman Jerry Nadler surprised the room. Nadler announced that the group would break until Friday morning and finally take a vote then. And Friday, that vote finally came. The House Judiciary Committee voted along party lines to move the articles of impeachment out of committee and onto the full House. A full House vote, the vote that has the power to formally impeach President Trump, is expected next week. So as we head toward that full House vote, how exactly did we get here? What amendments came out of the markup and what did the wild and unexpectedly long debate process teach us about what's to come next week, an undoubtedly historic week for this country? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. Politics reporter Colby Ickowitz has been covering this debate since it began Wednesday night. I managed to pull her into the studio Thursday during a break on the Hill. I wanted to ask her about the process we were seeing play out, one that at the time seemed like organized chaos and likely to wrap up soon after we were talking. The question I want to start with is, why does the debate over what's in the articles come after the articles have been drafted? So essentially, who agreed upon the articles as written before the markup, if not the Judiciary Committee that's debating it now?
0: Right. And that's how all legislation works on Capitol Hill. So you have a group of people, lawmakers and their staff, that draft legislation, and then they bring it before the committee. And then the committee votes on it. They can offer amendments to it. And then from the committee, it goes to the floor. And so the same rules applied here with the Articles of Impeachment, the judiciary staff, the majority staff wrote the Articles of Impeachment, gives the minority a chance to amend it, then it goes to the floor.
1: Okay. So draft the articles, debate the articles. Finalize the articles, vote in the House Judiciary Committee and on that final version. Right. Okay. So that debate process, which we saw unfold over the past two days, it's called a markup. Can you tell me more about that process, about what exactly a markup is and what its function is?
0: Right. So different than a hearing. So a committee has two functions. One is to hold hearings Mm -hmm. where you call witnesses in, expert witnesses to come in and testify. We saw that in the Intelligence Committee when numerous people came in to testify about what they knew regarding President Trump and his conversation with the Ukrainian president. In the Judiciary Committee, they had one hearing, but they also had a markup. And a markup is when you take the information that you've gleaned from the expert witnesses, put that into a piece of legislation or a resolution, have an open debate about it. The the difference between a markup and other things you see on Capitol Hill is you actually do have an open debate. Republicans are the minority party can offer as many amendments as they want, they can talk as long as they want about that amendment, and then they vote at the end of that. So markups in committees can be hours and hours. They could go into the middle of the night. The markup on the Affordable Care Act during the Obama administration, I think, went till like four in the morning or something. So markups might be the most democratic of all of the things that Congress does, because it does give everyone in the committee a voice. That being said, if you're the minority party, you can offer as many amendments as you want, chances are they're not going to get added to the underlying resolution or legislation.
1: To the point of giving everybody a voice, a lot of what we saw over the past day in this markup were things that felt like speeches or monologues. Why is that the choice of a lot of these, both Republicans and Democrats, in in this particular markup?
0: Sure. I mean, in in the case of the impeachment uh, inquiry, this entire impeachment inquiry has been very much about staking partisan positions and and trying to continuously state the same facts over and over again to illustrate your point, different than legislation or policy that can be kind of convoluted. Maybe there's some things that Republicans and Democrats agree on, some things that they don't. In this case, there is absolutely nothing that they agree on. Democrats say that President Trump abused power. Republicans say that he didn't. And so nothing is going to change that Mm -hmm. So the only thing that the Republicans have to do is continue to make their case to the American people that the Democrats are overstepping by trying to impeach the president. And the only thing the Democrats can do is try to convince the American people that this is absolutely necessary. Can you
1: explain how a member of Congress actually goes ahead and introduces a new amendment and then how a vote is
0: conducted on that amendment? So a lot of that is happening behind the scenes. So the minority party would have had a discussion with the top Republican on the committee, which in this case is uh, Representative Doug Collins from Georgia. And they would have decided which amendments which members want to introduce. They might say, OK, we've got 20 amendments. That's unreasonable. Let's pick the seven that we're going to let our members introduce when we come to the day of. And so then the uh, member, the Republican who wants to offer the amendment just says, I have an amendment that I'd like to offer. And the clerk reads the amendment. And then that that person, that congressman or congresswoman can speak about their amendment. And then it, bat- you know, it gets batted back and forth. The Democrats will talk about why it should not be added. Republicans, will, you know, and, and as you've seen, though, is that a lot of it got off track, right? Mm-hmm. So you would start with a conversation about the underlying amendment, but then you got into the speechifying. So everyone just wanted a chance to continue to make their points. But these amendments introduced by the Republicans
1: are decided in advance by the group of Republicans and by leadership. These aren't individual representatives kind of coming at it from their own perspective.
0: It's not they're not going rogue. Right. So this is all it's all theater. It's all pre-planned. It's all practiced. Given all of that, were there any actual
1: notable amendments made during this process?
0: Well, it started with uh, Chairman Jerry Nadler introducing a substitute amendment. And what a substitute amendment is, is that you offer a substitute amendment and it completely erases and replaces the underlying resolution. And that can be for grammatical reasons, technical reasons. Sometimes it's substantive, but usually it's just because the staff went back and looked and the resolution that they filed had a few small mistakes. And in this case, what the problem was is that throughout the resolution, it said Donald J. Trump, and they wanted to change that to Donald John Trump. Why they wanted to do that, why that was necessary, they did not make clear. That was the reason for the substitute amendment.
1: The congressional
0: equivalent of control F. Right. <laughs> exactly. Find and replace. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So then what happens going forward is that every amendment thereafter is an amendment to the amendment. So you're no longer amending the underlying resolution. You're amending the substitute amendment. So you amend the substitute amendment. And at the very end of that process, you'll vote on the substitute amendment to replace the resolution then you'll vote on the final resolution. Simple. Yeah, very, very straightforward. Really, very easy. <laughs> so some of the amendments, uh, one from Representative Jim Jordan was to just completely take out Article 1. He said that there is no... Uh, that's the abuse of power That's article. the abuse of power, that there's no evidence of abuse of power, so that should just be stricken. And so that resulted in hours and hours of debate, some about abuse of power and some just freewheeling on how the Democrats, again, are overstepping and how the Republicans Aren't withholding their duty to democracy and the Constitution. And so that went back and forth for many, many hours. When they finally voted on that, obviously it was voted down by the by the Democrats. Then later you had Representative Matt Gates introduce an amendment that would have replaced Joe Biden's name with Hunter Biden, so it would have said that the president asked the Ukrainian government to investigate Hunter Biden as opposed to investigating. Joe Biden. And the reason why Matt Gates would want to change that is because investigating Hunter Biden makes it less directly political in their eyes. I mean, the co- common refrain from Democrats is that Trump wanted an investigation into a possible future political opponent in Joe Biden. But if it's not Joe Biden, it's Hunter Biden. That's related, but not so direct.
1: One other interesting thing was that it felt sort of inevitable that we would come to this conclusion where we would have a party-line vote at the end. To cover something like this, what is that experience like then in a reporting capacity?
0: I mean, it's kind of like watching a true crime documentary where you know how it's (laughs) going to end, but you're still glued to the uh, how we get there. And so at this point, you think you've heard every argument you could possibly hear from the Democrats and the Republicans. And then There's always these little moments that are going to surprise you Mm -hmm. in these markups. But again, at the end of the day, we all knew how it was going to end. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious.
1: Each week we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape and we'll trace it through
0: all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts.
1: Well, sort of. Now that's still true. No substantive new amendments were added Thursday. But there were definitely surprises. When we recorded this interview with Colby late Thursday, it seemed like the hearing would come to a close pretty soon. Of course, that's not what happened. This uh, hearing's been enough of an institutional embarrassment without putting it on an endless loop. So if I could just offer a modest suggestion, if no one has anything new to add, that they resist the temptation uh, to uh, inflict what we've already heard over and over again. And with that, I yield back. Republicans continued proposing amendments well into the night. And at 11.15 p.m. or so, instead of calling a vote, Chairman Nadler called for a break overnight, before a Friday vote instead.
0: Therefore, the committee will now stand in recess until tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., at which point I will move to divide the question so that each of us may have the opportunity to cast up or down votes on each of the articles of impeachment. And to let history be our judge, the committee is in recess.
1: Chairman Mr. Chairman,
0: there was no consulting from the minority ranking member on your schedule for tomorrow, in which you just blown up schedules for everyone. You chose not to consult the
1: ranking member on a schedule issue of this magnitude. So typical. This
0: is the this is the kangaroo court that we're talking about. She's outrageous. We're Stalin-esque oh, and unbelievable. Not actually. even consult. Just Stalin-esque. Let's have a dictator. It was good to hear about that. NAMT. Unbelievable.
1: So I went back to Colby to find out exactly what happened. We talked yesterday about how this process and the amendments are pre-planned and the process is often set before these things get underway. What changed last night as we saw these hearings continue on and on into the night?
0: There was an expectation that Republicans would offer a few amendments. They would give some speeches and this thing would wrap up. They would do a final vote sometime in the early evening. But then suddenly the hours ticked by and here we are looking at midnight and Finally, the Republicans say around eleven ish that they are done offering amendments and now it's time to vote. And Chairman Nadler decides that, you know what, we're going to sleep on it. We're going to let everyone think about the debate that we've had and we're going to vote on Friday. And before
1: we get to Nadler's decision, do we know why the Republicans chose to keep adding additional amendments and bring this thing further into the night?
0: this is the last chance that the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee have to make their case for President Trump and against impeachment before it goes to the floor next week. And it seemed like as the debate ramped up, there was a realization among the Republicans on the committee that they needed to keep making the point over and over and over again that the president did nothing wrong. And everyone wanted to have a say. People uh, talk about Republicans talking to an audience of one, Mm -hmm. meaning the president. And so we knew that the president was watching yesterday. He was tweeting almost every Republican congressman who tweeted about the hearing yesterday. And so they clearly wanted the president to see that they were going to bat for him, that they were fighting for him. So they were doing that for several, several hours.
1: It's 1115. As you say, Chairman Nadler says we are going to break overnight and vote in the morning.
0: Do we know why Nadler made that choice? So what he has said is that this is such a grave moment, it's a solemn moment, to do it in the dark of night when everyone's asleep, when all of Americans are asleep, doesn't do justice to the vote, and that it would be better to do it in the light of day. When people are awake, when people have had some rest, he made a comment about hoping that the members would sleep on it and and vote their conscience, which was clearly his way of saying to the Republicans, maybe if you take a few hours, you'll change your mind in the morning, Mm -hmm. which... Seems unlikely. Un- unlikely, <laughs> unlikely, But so that was his reasoning. And of course, the Republicans were furious.
1: Yeah. Tell me more. How did how did how did
0: the rest of Congress react? The ranking Republican on the committee, Doug Collins, was blindsided by this. He was furious that the chairman didn't ask him beforehand or give him any heads up that he was about to do that. And the Republicans on the committee, I think one Republican called it Stalin-esque, like they were very, very angry that they have to get up this morning and go back into the committee room and have this vote.
1: So how did the Judiciary Committee, after all of this, ultimately vote on these articles?
0: It happened exactly as we expected it to, exactly how it would have if they had voted in the middle of the night, which is strictly down uh, party lines on both articles. And now it goes to the floor next week.
1: Is this now the final version that the full House will vote on, or could it still change
0: before that final,
1: final vote on the floor?
0: So I don't believe it's been decided yet how they will go about having the floor debate. The House has very specific rules. They have something called a rules committee. And before any bill goes to the floor, the Speaker of the House will decide, okay, this is going to be an open rule, which means you can have a free-for-all on the House floor. That's very rare. You can have a a semi-closed rule where the rules committee will decide which amendments are allowed. Or you can have a closed rule, which means no amendments are allowed. And so if it's a closed rule, what that means is there'll be a debate on the articles and then they'll pass the articles. If there's any amendments allowed, that will go through the Rules Committee first and then go to the floor. That is the standard procedure for legislation and for resolutions. Of course, this is only the third time in history that we have done this. And so I'm not sure if the process is a little different next week. So we will see.
1: Do any of these events that we've seen since Wednesday, tell us anything about how that floor debate might go? Does does the behavior of the Democrats or the Republicans or their strategies as reflected by the actions of the past few days indicate more about what we'll see next week?
0: The floor tends to be a place that has a little bit more decorum Mm -hmm. than a committee room. And so when there is outbursts or dramatic moments on the floor that's incredibly notable, so... You would imagine that people would be on better behavior, but that the Republicans that are chosen to speak on behalf of the president and against the articles of impeachment will be animated because, again, they're, they're really preaching to both the audience of one, but also their constituents at home, President Trump's base, who is uh, equally as angry that this impeachment is going forward. Do we
1: think that there might be any surprises on the floor in terms of how Democrats, particularly maybe moderate Democrats, vote?
0: Right. I mean, at the beginning of this process, the question was, will any Republicans vote with Democrats for these articles of impeachment? Will some of the moderate Republicans do so worried about their re-election in 2020? And what it appears to be, and we'll see next week, is that the Republicans will be unified in a vote against the articles, and there might actually be some Democrats that defect and vote with them. Some of the moderate Democrats who won their election in 2018 in these purple swing districts that voted for Trump in 2016. And so in order for them to win again in 2020, they have to toe this very delicate line where they fight for jobs, they fight for health care, but they're not being acrimonious or seen as being anti-Trump.
1: But surely the inverse must exist, right? Like Republicans who are in
0: districts that sway that didn't necessarily vote for Trump in past elections. Certainly. So you have someone – the best example of this is uh, Representative Brian Fitzpatrick in, in the Philadelphia suburbs. Now, he um, will often vote with Democrats on policy. He has twice this week. He just did uh, yesterday on drug pricing, uh, was one of two Republicans to vote with the Democrats. And that's not the type of thing that's going to get him primaried. Mm-hmm. But voting for the Articles of Impeachment is – and so what he has to worry about between now and the spring is, is does someone from the far right run against him, beat him, and then a Democrat goes and beats that person. And so a vote he, in
1: favor of impeachment would motivate someone potentially on the far exactly. right. Exactly.
0: So he's in the, the probably the worst situation, him and a, and a few others, because he's got to vote against the articles in order to avoid a primary But then his vote against the articles could really hurt him in the general.
1: All right. Well, we'll have to stay tuned for that. Thank you so much, Colby. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the impeachment process in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That, Post Reports, and The Daily 202's Big Idea, updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly hardworking Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell brooks logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.